The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. All right, turn with me, if you would, to Proverbs 16. We're going to start in verse 1. Amen. You don't uh, hear a lot of sermons preached on Proverbs. It can be kind of hard to do, uh, but by God's grace, we're going to get in here and dig around and uh, see what the Lord has to say to us. So Proverbs 16, verse 1. Today, we're going to talk about plans and goals. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about these, and there is uh, a lot of unnecessary confusion in regards to them as well, unfortunately. Uh, Some folks like planning, and they are great at it. Uh, some would rather dig a hole and fill it back in than sit down and try to make a plan about anything. Uh, So we are going to approach the timeless wisdom of God's perfect word together to understand how we can approach plan making and goal setting in both a scriptural and circumspect way. Okay, so we're in Proverbs 16, like I said, verse 1, we're going to read to verse 9 together. I hope you're there. Proverbs is uh, right before or right after Psalms, which is the big one in the middle. Okay. Here we go. Verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to a man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. Commit your works to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Praise God for his word. Amen, amen. Um, So we see here in in several ways, just in these few verses, that uh, making plans and setting goals are both godly and wise. This would also harmonize with the rest of what the scriptures would say about it. However, there are many who either because of confusion or lack of knowledge or because of a desire to justify foolishness and laziness, uh, they claim the opposite, that that planning is is not godly and it's not something we should do. Um, It's kind of weird, but it's out there. Uh, There are a few verses you will hear some people quote when claiming that making plans or setting goals is not godly or just giving a justification for why they refuse to do so. Okay, so the first one, oftentimes you'll hear people will head to Matthew 6. These are well-known verses. I'm going to read them to you, though, Uh, and kind of the whole thing just so we can really understand where that line of reasoning would come from. So, for this reason I say to you, I'm in uh, Matthew 6. Don't don't turn there. I'll just read it to you. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you by being worried can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day 
has enough trouble of its own. Really, really great verses. I'm so glad they're in there. Uh, and I can just see these verses framed beautifully and placed next to the Xbox or PlayStation of some guy that lives in his parents' basement and lives off of a diet of nacho cheese, Doritos, and Mountain Dew. Right? This is the life verse. I'm not going to worry about anything. Today's got enough trouble of its own. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to game it and live it up and you know, just enjoy life. Okay? Is that, is that what these verses mean? No. It's not. Uh, and I'm not, you know, I'm not intentionally picking on gamers. You know, uh, Matthew 6, could just, that could be somebody's password for all their social media accounts where they go waste time. Or uh, it could be the life verse they quote while they're doing whatever they're doing, wasting resources on any number of distractions while having no thought, really, or, or concern or wisdom uh, regarding the future. And, and honestly, I, I, I can sympathize a little bit with and see how someone could get here, right? Especially verse 34. Let me just read that again. It says, so do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I could see how you could build a false theological construct out of that, saying, well, look, man, it said, it said don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. I'm not going to plan for the future. I'm not going to think about it. I'm just going to trust God. You could actually end up sounding real holy um, out of that, right? I mean, if, if you wanted to. Here's the problem with this interpretation. We, we can't just look at this, right? The Bible is full of warnings to the lazy and the slothful and the willfully ignorant. These verses rightly call us not to worry about tomorrow, but they never say or imply that we should not think about tomorrow. It never says that. And it is actually God's sovereignty and faithfulness that allows us to think about tomorrow, make plans, and even set goals, and not be overcome by worry, right? I mean, without Jesus, I would never want to think about the future because it would be terrifying. I don't, I don't, know, if you've, I don't know if you can remember, some of you maybe that, that have turned from sin and trust in Jesus, and, and now he is your Lord, and now you know uh, the truth of his promises and that he'll never uh, leave you nor forsake you. I don't know if you remember what it was like to try to think about the future and not know that God was going to be with you and not know that he was going to have your back and he was going to be the light to your feet and the lamp to your path and he was going to go before you and, and that he was going to uh, you know, be faithful to you in, in, any, in every, any and every situation. That's, that's scary, man. So really, it's only God's sovereignty that allows us to think about the future and not worry. Because if you don't have the truth of the scriptures, or you don't know the faithfulness of Christ, then the future is a pretty terrifying thing. Um, and so it's actually, it's actually God's goodness and faithfulness that allows us to plan and not worry, right? Amen. Um, another verse often misunderstood and misapplied in this discussion is James chapter 4, uh, verses 13 through 17. So here's those. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is a sin. Now, this is also compelling, and it's easy to see how it could be misinterpreted to mean hey, you don't know what tomorrow's going to bring, so fly by the seat of your pants, you know, eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we might die. And that's what some people do with this verse. But here's, here's the problem again with that. This verse doesn't ever say, don't make a plan for tomorrow for engaging in business or making a profit. It says don't boast about it, 
right? So this doesn't mean we can't think ahead, we can't make plans, we can't be strategic by God's grace and even using his wisdom to help with that. But it means we don't, we don't run our mouth about it and we don't say a bunch of stuff as if we know exactly how it's going to go because we also have to be humble enough to know when we make plans and set goals, we, we are open and willing and thankful if God comes in and adjusts and changes those. So I'm not going to jump up in front of everyone and say, I'm going to go to this town and make this much money, watch me, right? Get rich or die trying. Well, you might die trying, and uh, it might not go good for you. So you should shh on that. But that doesn't mean you don't ever think about it. And that verse is in no way advocating for close your eyes and, and don't ever think or, or apply wisdom or make a plan. It's not what it's saying. Not at all. Uh, Proverbs 16.5, which we just started out reading, would agree that boasting is not helpful. Uh, that says, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished, right? So we can't get so stoked on our plans and so sure of ourselves in our plans that we start talking about it a whole bunch as if, you know, that's the only possible way it could go, end up in pride and end up essentially uh, dealing with, assuredly, he will not go unpunished. I'd rather avoid that one, and so I'd rather stay humble and out of pride. Praise God. Uh, the idea that making plans is not something God would want us to do based on the verses we just discussed or any others that someone may bring up is, is just plain foolish. And so I would, just, I would invite you, I'd say, come, let us reason together and, and let's think through this, okay? First of all, the whole narrative of the, the scriptures is infused with God making and including his people in plans, okay? So let's, let's just take a quick survey. Starting off in the garden, right? Adam and Eve... Uh, sin. They, they decide Satan's idea is better than God's idea. They, they eat of the fruit. What happens? God comes in. He starts doling out the consequences, and he says to the serpent, uh, here's what's going to happen. Uh, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and her seed, uh, and you're going you're gonna to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head, right? So right off the bat, right there, we see beginning the foreshadowing of the fact that, yes, this happened, but God has a plan to address it already, Abraham, what's he do with Abraham? Abraham, pull up your tent stakes, start walking. I'll tell you where we're going once you start walking by faith. So Abraham does that. Then he calls Abraham out of his tent one day and says, check it out. Look how many stars are in the sky. I'm going to make your seed like that many. And I'm going to bless the whole world through your seed. Now, what does God have to have in order to make a statement like that? A plan. Moses, he says, go to Pharaoh and demand that he lets my people go or I'm going to smite him with plagues. God's got a plan. Joshua, go into the promised land. March around that city till it falls. That's a plan. Gideon, get this army down to 300 so I can use it to defeat this enemy. God had a plan. Knew exactly how he wanted it done. God had a plan for his mercy to be revealed to a town called Nineveh. And he told Jonah his plan was for him to go and get it done. He told the prophet Isaiah that there would be a sign. There'd be a virgin that would have a child and we call him Emmanuel. He'd be God with us. And what did God do in saying that? He let Isaiah the prophet glimpse some of that master plan. Jesus told the haters in his day, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. How could he do that? How could, how could Jesus say that? Well, he said that because God is a God who has a plan, and he has a strategy, he has a goal, and he's going to see that plan through until the end. None of that could have happened if God wasn't a God of really precise planning. Ephesians 1.4 tells us that God chose us before the foundation of the world. Revelations 13.8 tells us the Lamb of God was slain before the foundations of the world. 
God has a plan that ends with those of us who turn from sin and trust in Jesus, spending eternity basking in the brilliant radiance of his unveiled glory and experiencing the uninhibited joy of worshiping him forever. God has a plan. Now, some of you might say, I already knew God had a good plan for me, and that's because of my favorite verse. My favorite verse is, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you. Right? Give you hope in a future. I got good things for you. That's a super cool verse. But I just need to say to you, friend, that verse is not about you. Okay? This is, this is part of where a discussion about biblical context and biblical interpretation comes in. We need to understand. You go to Jeremiah. Check out who God's talking to. What's going on there? He is dealing specifically with his people, Israel, that are in Babylonian captivity. And he's letting them know, this is not how it's going to end. I've got a good plan for you. Now, I know that verse looks great on the fridge. And listen, if you're stoked on the fact that God was faithful to his people, Israel, when they were in Babylonian captivity, you want to quote that verse? I mean, you want to remember about it? Amen. But quoting that verse and trying to make it like, like that's the thing that means that God's got a good plan for you, that's not even what God was talking about in that verse. Now, well, that's a real bummer. I like that one. Okay, I know. But let me, let me say this. Everything in that verse is ultimately true for you, but it is just elsewhere in the scriptures that we learn that. It's, I think it's important that we don't just lift a verse out and, and think it means something or try to make it mean something that God didn't intend for it to mean. We got to watch out for that. Here's some verses, okay, here's some verses about you if you have turned from sin to trust in Jesus, okay? <clears throat> Here's Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Hold on, the other verse was happy. That's not happy. Hold on, it'll get there. Just roll with me for a second. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Verse 4 is where it starts to get good. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Woo! Come on. He's got plans for you and they're good. Jeremiah 29 11 ain't about you, but this is about you, man. And if you've turned from sin to trust in Jesus, you're going to be raised up to sit right next to the master and experience his glorious grace forever. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. God prepared them beforehand, so not only do we have this beautiful eternal promise that we're going to be with him forever, basking in his unveiled radiant glory, but also he's got a plan for us while we're here. He's got 
good works laid out for us, that as a result of the fact that he comes and saves us and changes us and allows us now to not just be lovers of self, but to love others and to love God, now he's got good works for us to do. And these good works we do won't be tainted by the fact that our motives are jacked up half the time, right? Because before God comes and makes us like him, able to really love others and not be about ourselves, even when we do good things, the motives are bad. But God comes and changes that. So now we can have a life of joy and we can experience the beauty of the truth that it is better to give than receive. It is better to pour out your life for the better of others than it is to just constantly be about doing your own thing and building your own little kingdom. It allows us and frees us to participate in the beauty of what it is we were created to do, which is to preach the good news of the gospel and build God's kingdom, knowing that we have been welcomed in by grace into that very kingdom. Amen. God makes plans, and he includes us in his plans. And so it is absolutely godly and right to use the minds he gave us to also make goals and plans, as long as we use the wisdom he provides in his word to guide the process. As a matter of fact, the first nine verses of Proverbs 16 contain both naturally practical and spiritually wise principles for making plans and setting goals. So let's look at these together. We're going to work through these in light of everything that we just heard and said, okay? <clears throat> Verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to a man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Now this along with verse 3 and 9, let me read those to you. Verse 3 says, commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. Verse 9 says this, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So all of those together, they teach us this very important principle that we have to remember. <clears throat> we should prayerfully plan and set goals, but ultimately, King Jesus has the last say. That should be something we're stoked about, uh, knowing that he's sovereign and good, way wiser than us, his thoughts are higher than ours, his ways better than ours. I'm really glad that if I have a plan, I think it's super, super good. If I've missed something, he can come in and go, hold on, son, let's adjust this over here. And I'm asking him to do it all the time, because I know I don't see everything he sees. Dear friends, again, this is why we can look to the future without fear. Even if we miss something in the planning phase, if we are submitted to God and desire his will above all else, he will lovingly correct our course. That's a precious promise to us, and I'm thankful for it. Once we've... Uh, so also here it says, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. And then verse 9 also, you know, it tells us the mind of man plans his way, but the, the Lord directs his steps. So once we've started talking out the plans and walking out the plans, if we have committed them to the Lord, verse 3 tells us, um, he's going to remove the parts that are not for our good, and he's going to establish us on a path where our plans are aligned with his. And that's the beauty of part of what God does in this process of sanctification is he makes us more like him. As Romans 8 tells us, he's continually conforming us into the image of his son. More and more what's happening is my will becomes like his, right? And that's, that's what it looks like. So, it, you know, people, um, people like the verse that says, you know, if you delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. And, and that's, that's a good verse, and I like that verse too. 
uh, a lot of times people forget to delight yourself in the Lord part, and they just remember that he gives you desires of your heart. you, you got to make sure the whole verse is in there. But the second part is how we even think about that. It's like, okay, so if, a lot of times we think, if I, if, okay, if I, if I do the stuff for God and, I, and I, you know, all the things, right, and then, and then he'll give me the desires of my heart. But really what's happening there is when, when we delight ourselves in the Lord, part of what's going to happen, the process that's going to happen is the desires of my heart are going to change, man. If my delight is in the Lord, if I'm spending time with him, if I'm reading his word, if I'm close to him in proximity, if I'm literally dwelling, like Psalm 91 says, in his shadow, so close to him that he but whispers and I hear what he says, all of a sudden the things I want, the things I think are important, the things that are my priorities, those are going to shift and change and all of a sudden intertwined in an inextricable way is going to get to the point where you can't even tell my desire from his. And that's beautiful because then where's, where's the disparity? Then I can go harder and faster for Christ and not be worried about distracted to the right and to the left because what I want is what he wants. And so every day I want to want what he wants more. Instead of hoping that if I do some right things, then he'll give me what I want. I want him to change what I want. I just want to want what he wants because he wants what's best. And he's good. And he doesn't want life to be boring and, you know, a big curmudgery. It's probably a word I just made up, but that's okay. You know what I mean. God's not about your life being a big bummer, man. God is glorified when you walk through this existence completely fulfilled and with full joy, uh, walking after him uh, and doing what it is he made you to do. God's glorified in our joy. This is also why you don't have to have a burning bush or an angel come talk to you before you make every decision. Because Jesus died and rose from death and he gave us his spirit to dwell in us, we can move forward with confidence knowing that if we get off course, he will lead us back. Okay, so here's, here, here's what it looks like, man. We're trying to make a decision. We're trying to make a plan, trying to figure out how to go. You know, I think this, this, is, this is difficult for some people and it causes much unneeded frustration, okay? So we're trying to figure out what to do, man. We should pray. We should listen for God. We should move. And then we should pray some more that if we're, as, as we're moving forward, that if we get off course, that God would correct, that God would come and change that, uh, that he would be what verse 9 says, that he would direct our steps. That's his promise, and he'll stick to it. So we should pray, listen, move, and pray. Instead of pray, freeze, get frustrated, and then quit. Because that's what people do sometimes. They pray. They feel like they don't get some Old Testament style, you know, uh, epiphany, you know, no bushes on fire, no angels with multiple wings coming to talk to them. And so because they don't have that, they feel like God's not answered or that they can't move forward. Listen, man, God deals with people all different kinds of ways. Yes, he did meet Moses in the wilderness with a burning bush, and that's pretty cool. But he also told Abraham, pull up those tent, those tent stakes, brother, and start walking. And when you do that part and you start walking, then I'm going to tell you where we're going. Sometimes it takes faith, man. He told Moses, tell all those people, start walking towards that sea. And when they do, then I'll split it. Sometimes we don't realize that's how that story goes, man. By some accounts, a couple million people had to start walking towards a sea that wasn't split yet. That's where faith comes in, man. Sometimes people will, will pray, feel like they don't get some type of like real... Uh, extravagant supernatural answer or whatever it is, so they freeze in place, they don't move, which isn't what God wanted them to do anyways. Sometimes he wants us to move forward in faith, stay within the parameters the scriptures give us, and, tr and, and trust him then to guide our steps. 
right? Sometimes you got to move in faith, man. You got to go forward a little bit. Some people will freeze in place, they'll get frustrated, they'll get angry, and they just quit. I've seen it a lot of times, and so we don't have to do that. That's not the way we have to go about this, okay? Verse 2, uh, it says, All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. We have to ask ourselves why every time we make a plan or set a goal. Our enemy is masterful at getting us to do outwardly good things for the wrong reasons. And here's the truth, man. Good things for bad reasons are bad things. Did you catch that? It matters a whole lot why you're doing it. Just because something is outwardly good, if the reason we're doing it is not right, it's, it's now a bad thing. <laughs> it's not helpful. Okay? Verse 4 and 5. What do they say? The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. These two verses taken together should keep our confidence and hope in Christ and not ourselves when making plans and setting goals. Uh, first of all, verse 4 saying, you know, the Lord has made everything for his own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. I mean, that, that again speaks to the sovereignty of God. It speaks to the fact that God knew Pharaoh was going to be leader of Egypt when all that went down, right? And he knew Pharaoh was going to harden his heart, and he, he had that all set up. And the Lord's glory and fame went throughout the earth when that earthly leader thought he could stand up to the God of the universe, and he found out real quick, nope. So God has ordained by his sovereign will everything. He knows what's going on. He's not taken surprised by anything. And so that should, first, that should keep our confidence and hope in him as we make plans, not in our plans, but in him instead. Uh, and, and secondly, you know, verse 5 will help us with that. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. So we should be real careful to make sure no matter how smart we are, no matter how good we are at, at strategic planning and goal making, no matter what our track record of is, setting a mark and then hitting it, I don't care if you got 100%, man, you better never get to the point where you're worshiping your goal making strategic thinking ability as opposed to the God that gave you that goal making strategic thinking ability. Come on, Proverbs, man. Woo! I'm having fun. All right. Verses 6, 7, and 8. Uh, by loving kindness and truth, uh, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than a great income with injustice. So what does this tell us? Always, whenever, man, we are planning, we need to keep the gospel in view. And if we do that, we will avoid destruction and we will see the favor of the Lord. Okay, so how did I pull that out of there? Well, first of all, verse 7. This is, this is one of many, many, many. Uh, you know, this is, this is before Christ came. Obviously, we're in Proverbs, man. We're, we're a thousand or so years, roughly, before Christ even came. And so there's, there's some prophetic uh, underpinnings here to even to, you know, this book of Proverbs. But it says, by loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for, right? So Jesus came in grace and truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And it is, it is by God's loving kindness that Jesus was sent. And so we, we see here already that sin is atoned for. Um, you know, iniquity is atoned for by God's loving kindness and by the truth. Uh, and so this points forward to Jesus. And we need to keep the gospel in view always when we're making plans. What is this? And by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. Well, you know, 
this is not contradictory to the, the, the most prevalent scripture, you know, or command throughout the scriptures, which is do not fear. This word fear has with it this, this idea of, of reverence. It's not a being terrified of the Lord as much as it is respecting the fact that he is God, he is sovereign, he is judge, he is king. Yes, he is father, and yes, he is good, and yes, he is merciful, but also he's not to be trifled with. And so, when, when you think of it that way and you care about his loving laws and his benevolent boundaries and you understand that, yes, he is a loving father, but also like he's serious when he says no, uh, when you have that kind of fear and reverence for the Lord, it, it keeps you away from evil in your planning and goal making. You will consider that looking forward uh, and you'll think about that when you plot out a course, which is obviously for our good. Um, it's interesting, then verse 7 tells us, when a man's way are please, ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And so there's this idea that because of the gospel and because of God treating us as sons and daughters, and when we, when we seek to please him and when we are delighted in him, when our will is aligned with his, we see oftentimes a, a removal of obstacles that would have otherwise been there. This does not mean a worry-free, trouble-free life, but it does mean that there, there is something too, and it's okay to say that God has a supernatural favor upon his children, man. You'll have business deals other people wouldn't get. And I know some of you in here, and I know some of your stories. I could call you up right now, and you could testify time and time again that, you know, I had somebody call me for this deal that nobody else would have ever thought could have possibly happened, and it just fell into my lap. Or, you know, this thing over here, there was, there was a big wall in the way, and there was no way we saw it, it happening, but then I got a phone call, and, and that was the one thing, and I didn't even know how to do it, and, and here it went. So many of you have had opportunities, you've had issues that, that seemed insurmountable, but the favor of God just came in and kind of overrode that. Um, again, this is in no way a promise of, of a trouble-free life. Sometimes God will uh, lovingly lead us into times of, of trial and adversity so that we can persevere by his grace, have character grow in us, and then have a greater hope on the other side. Romans 5 tells us that. So we don't want to you know, get this twisted idea that any type of adversity or difficulty is bad for us. Actually, the Bible says we can rejoice in that because of how powerful God is and how faithful he is to his word. We know that even if trial and adversity comes, when we enter into that thing, if we keep on the, on, on, in our mind the other side of what that looks like when we walk with God, uh, there's reason for hope. And so we just keep on pushing. The very worst thing that can happen in the very worst adversity for the Christian is that you die. And what did Paul say? I win. Right? I mean, how do you beat a guy like that? You can't. Amen. <clears throat> so just we always need to keep the gospel in view when we're planning uh, so we will avoid destruction and we will see the favor of the Lord. Uh, it, it's also interesting, verse 8 says, you know, better is a little with righteousness than, than great income with injustice. I think we need to, you know, that also... That, that also helps us, if we keep the gospel in view, we will, we will understand that uh, the, the precious gift of righteousness given to us through Christ uh, is, of, is of much greater value than anything else we could try to plan to attain. And so keeping that in mind will help us prioritize and set goals in a way that doesn't lead us astray or off into destructive uh, pathways or things that's going to end up being f painful and, and hurtful as opposed to helpful. So, um, you know, just, just a reminder in light of the gospel you know, even if even if you got less than the guy next to you, man, but you got righteousness and right standing with God, you're 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 in good you're in a good spot. You got a lot going for you. You're in a much better place, uh, you know, than 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 Scrooge McDuck's, you know, swimming in his coin vault, uh, but not, not having Jesus. I guess I shouldn't assume the the sal you know the salvation uh, position of Scrooge McDuck, but I'm just looking at the fruit of his life, man. 
The guy's stingy, really likes his money, so probably doesn't love the Lord. All right, um, the gospel and God's overarching plan of redemption should be the main consideration when we are planning for the future. Can I say that again? That's real important. Um, I know I said a lot, and I blasted through a bunch of Proverbs right there, but let, let, you know, let, jump back in here with me if, if I've lost you. The gospel and God's overarching plan of redemption should be the main consideration when we are planning for the future. We should plan for how to take care of our needs and the need of our families, but we should also prioritize those needs properly. Our most important need is to obey and be in right relationship with God. So we need to plan our lives and schedule around this. Every plan we have, every goal we set, should be run through the grid of God's glory and God's mission. Every plan we have and every goal we set should be run through the grid of God's glory and God's mission. If we have financial goals, that's great. The Bible teaches that we should be wise with money, but we need to ask ourselves, why do we want to make more or save more? Is it to feed our fleshly desires and egos, or is it to have more resources with which to be generous? We've got to ask ourselves, why I have this goal? Why am I making this plan? Right? Good things, bad reasons, bad things. If we have health and wellness goals, that's great. The Bible says our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and that it belongs to the Lord, and so we should take care of it. But why do we want to eat better or lose weight or sleep better or exercise? Is it to improve our self-esteem or reach some body image that our culture idolizes? Or is it to be healthy and full of energy so we can faithfully fulfill God's mission without restriction from avoidable health issues? The harmony of what the scriptures teach on the subject shows us that God's people should be prayerful planners and godly goal setters. The Bible gives us no excuse for shifting into neutral and trying to just coast through life, but it also doesn't allow us to put, our, put faith in our own plans. I didn't think about this while studying for this, but I feel prompted by the Holy Spirit to add this. You may have relationship goals. That's great. The Bible says that if you're already in a marriage, that you should seek and pursue that spouse and serve them faithfully uh, and love them well, just like Jesus has loved you. Um, but if, if you want that marriage to get better so that it's easier for you or less of a struggle or whatnot, instead of God being glorified in the fact that you two are coming together and doing his mission together, if you've got some ulterior selfish motive for a relationship goal in your marriage, that's no good. If you're single and desiring to not be, that's okay. The Bible says marriage is a beautiful thing. It's something that it's, it's absolutely okay to be desired. However, why is it you have that desire? Is it because you're lonely and you believe the lie that somebody else coming along is going to fulfill you or complete you or solve all your problems? Because if that's the motive and that's the lie you're believing, even if you catch somebody and get into a relationship with them and get married to them and, and make the whole deal, man, you have the cake, you have the party, everyone dresses up, it's super cool. It won't take long for you to be super disappointed and angry at them because they're not Jesus and didn't fix everything for you. 
So you can have relationship goals, you can have exercise goals, you can have financial goals, but you have to ask yourself, why is this my goal? You have to ask yourself, why am I planning to get to this spot? What am I hoping to accomplish? And why do I want to accomplish it? Before uh, I backtrack there, it's, I said the Bible gives us no excuse for shifting into neutral and trying to just coast through life, but it also doesn't allow us to put faith in our own plans. See, I understand that all of the type A's here at Love City uh, have been having a great time in the sermon so far uh, because they're going, you know, they're over there like, yes, plans, goals, strategy, yeah, slackers are sinners. Get them. Get them, Pastor Vince. Yeah. God likes my plans, and he likes my backup plans, and my 14 contingencies to account for every possible variable. Yay! I'm with you, type A's. I love you. But we, but we sin sometimes in that. We have seen that God expects us to use the minds he gave us and the wisdom of the scriptures to plan for the future, but he will not tolerate idolatry of strategic brilliance whether it be our own or someone else's. He will not tolerate us worshiping our plans and our strategies and our goals and our backup plans. And I just, can, I just, can I just be open here for a minute, man? There's been times in my life where I had a plan, and buddy, I was confident in it. I knew it was foolproof, and there was no way it wasn't going to work. I'd seen it work for other people, except mine was a little better because I was somewhat smarter than them in my mind. And guess what? I think the plan probably was good, and it probably could have worked, but I think God in his benevolent mercy cut my legs out from underneath me and broke me so I didn't worship my plans or think that somehow I was the guy that didn't need God to get there. I'm not talking a little bit either. I'm talking like life-altering, crush-you type stuff. And today I worship him for it, and I thank him. Because had he allowed me to rush headlong into folly the way I was headed, who knows where I'd be today? Probably a worshiper of my own intellect, thinking somehow that, uh, you know, around this time every year, if I sit down and just make another solid plan, it'll all be good. What need do I have to worship God? Foolishness, man. Stupid. So thankful that he's willing to chastise and discipline the children he loves. Amen. Uh, I know this will be, I know this is a few times now we've read this, but I want to read it one more time in light of talking to you type A planners that were stoked about the rest of the sermon. Let's just read this one more time. Let's remember. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. Let's plan type A's. Let's use the mind God gave us. Let's be strategic. Let's use his wisdom to build out those parameters. Let's think ahead, man. Let's help others do it when they struggle to do it. But let's never put our faith and confidence in those plans or our ability to draft them. Let's never be that Proverbs 16, verse 5 person that ends up being an abomination to the Lord in their pride. Amen? Amen. Our God makes perfect plans, and he expects every single one of our plans to flow out of and submit to his that makes sense? God makes perfect plans, and he expects every single one of our plans to flow out of and submit to his. 
Every one of God's flawless plans is a part of his overarching master plan of redemption, whereby the perfect life, sacrificial death, and triumphant resurrection of Jesus, hopeless sinners may become sons and daughters of God. God's overall master plan of redemption is that by Jesus coming and living a perfect life, the one that none of us could have, he then died the death that all of us should have. Jesus stepped in and paid the price you and I earned, the punishment you and I should have gotten. Jesus took it. Some people struggle, to, some people struggle with that idea. I've heard it called divine child abuse or somehow that God, how could God uh, punish Jesus? Why, why couldn't he just decide? Why couldn't God just decide to forgive us? Why couldn't God just decide to love us? Why couldn't God just decide to excuse our sin? Here's the deal. God is perfect in every one of his attributes. God is perfectly loving. There is no end to the depth and beauty of his love. He is the very source of love. He's the only reason we understand what that word means. God is love and God is loving. But God is also perfectly just and holy. So the reason God couldn't just give us a pass or just decide to let it go is that justice would not allow all of the atrocities that have happened throughout history because of humankind's sin to go unpunished. There had to be a price paid. Here's the beauty of our God. And here's where it sometimes doesn't seem like even justice was served to, as far as my finite mind can, can understand it. Somebody had to pay a price, so God said, I'll do it. And he sent Jesus to pay the incredible weight of that price. That's why Jesus had to shed his perfect blood. Because somebody was going to pay. The wrath of God had to be satisfied. The justice of God had to be satisfied. But the beauty of this, friends, is that the justice of God, the wrath of God, holy and, and righteous, that nothing about his wrath or his justice in any way calls his character into question. He should be upset. A perfect holy God should be upset at all of the atrocities humankind has thought of throughout history. Are you okay with that? Do you understand that God, if he's holy and perfect, should be upset? He should be. We should be, if we really think about it right. His justice and mercy, or his justice and wrath, and his mercy and love were able to embrace at the cross of Christ, and all be completely and fully satisfied. God's love and mercy and his justice and wrath, it all was fulfilled and it all culminated right there at the cross because the price was being paid, but God's love and mercy was being extended at the very same moment. That, that is why we sing about and think about and talk about the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. We're not morbid and we're not into weird, old-school Roman death implements. That's not the thing, man. We are all about exactly what it was God was doing, this miraculous, beautiful thing he accomplished at the cross of Christ, dealing with the problem of sin and giving us the opportunity to be called righteous. It's beautiful. I'm just so thankful that his justice can be fulfilled in that, that it wasn't required that each of us pay the price that we deserve. But he, God has, has seen fit that Jesus could pay that price, and then we are able. So here, and, here, and that's what we read earlier in Ephesians. So now, now 
what happens is God comes to us and says, here's what I've done. Will you believe it? All of the sin that you've accrued, every single place you've come up short, he's willing to forgive that. And he's willing to take the filthy rags that you've earned with your life and throw them away. And he's willing to drape over your undeserving shoulders the radiant robes of righteousness that Christ purchased with his perfect blood. That's what we're talking about here. That's why we worship him. And that's why I can't understand why anybody wouldn't. Because I know what I deserve. I know I'm not perfect and I'm not holy like God is. And even in the midst of this process of God working on me and sanctifying me, I'm still falling short half the time. And yet he's long-suffering and patient with me. And he's working on me and he's got a plan for me. And Jeremiah 29, 11 didn't tell me that. Ephesians 2 did in a bunch of other places. Romans 8 tells me that. He's going to continue conforming me and shaping me and making me look more like Jesus every day. And his end goal is that me and him are hanging out forever. And nothing's going to get between us anymore. There'll be no distance between us. I'll be able to be right next to him. Right in the very presence of the God that made me. That's what he's about. That's what he's doing. He's got a plan. And I want every single plan I make, every single goal I set, to submit to and flow out of God's master plan. How am I pushing that forward? How am I a part of what it is God is doing? I don't want to make offshoot plans that are about what I'm doing. I don't care. My priorities are dust and nothing. God, please change those so that I'm always and totally, completely enamored with and submitted to his master plan of redemption. That's my great hope for us, friends. May we desire that. May we ask for God's help with it. May he, by his spirit, clear us of the distractions that so often draw our vision to the right and to the left, man. We get confused. We get distracted. We run down crazy paths. We do our own thing. It always leads to pain and destruction. But he's got a plan, friends. And he's willing to help us with ours. Praise God. May we be a people who plan well by God's grace. May we be a people who plan only in light of God's glory. And may we be a people who submit every goal and hope and dream we have to the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. I thank you, God, for the timeless wisdom of your word, that it's perfect and unchanging. I thank you, Lord, that you are the master of strategic thinking. You're the best planner there ever was. I thank you, God, that you have goals set and you're going to reach them. And God, as we uh, look to you to understand how it is we should think and act and live, I thank you, God, that the harmony of your scriptures teach us from Proverbs 16 to, uh, I mean, there's several other places in the Proverbs you've made it clear all through your, uh, the, the story and the narrative of the scriptures, you've made it clear that you have a plan and that you've drawn us in to be a part of those plans. You've taught us how to think like you do, uh, and you've given us your wisdom. And so we're just thankful for that, God. Thank you that we can look forward to the future without fear. We don't need to worry. That doesn't mean we don't think or plan. It just means we don't worry. We're not freaked out. We can look forward into the future and know, even if there's dark spots in our understanding and we don't totally see how it is we're going to get from point A to point B, we have the promises of your word that say, if we commit our plans to you, Lord, that they will be established, that God, you will guide our steps and you will direct our path so we don't have to freak out. We don't have to feel like all the weight and the burden is on us to come up with the best and perfect 
perfect way to get where we need to go because, God, we can do the best we can. We can pray. We can listen. We can, we can look as far as we can. But then you said you'll come also alongside us, never leaving us or forsake us. And you'll be with us and you'll be the lamp to our feet and the light to our path. You'll show us where to go and how to do whatever it is we need to do to be the most effective in furthering your gospel in building your kingdom, and doing what it is you made us to do. God, help our desires to align with yours. Help our plans and dreams and goals to line up with yours. God, may we never do anything. May we never exert effort towards some plan or strategy that we don't first ask why. Why do I want to get there? Why do I want to do that? How is it this ties in to God's glory and God's ultimate goal of redemption for his precious people? Help us to ask these questions, God. Help us to have wisdom as we go about these things. Help us to be good planners. God, I ask that also that you would connect people uh, that have different strengths, Lord, even that are a part of Love City Church. Some people, just naturally their bend is, is not to look forward and plan. Uh, they're not that strategic in their thinking. That's not a strong gift set for them. And God, I know we have other people that are, are super gifted in strategy and thinking, uh, forward thinking, future looking. I ask you would bring those people together to complement um, those gifts. I ask God that uh, that would be a humble way that people could serve each other and help each other. May, may we come alongside those that may be struggling to uh, mark out a path and have plans and goals that line up with yours, and may we come alongside them and help them so they don't feel uh, like they're just kind of drowning in, in the day-to-day -day and can't figure out which way to go. Uh, and I ask God that you would just supernaturally make those connections because sometimes we, we bump and, and, and have a hard time uh, finding each other, Lord, to, to help each other and love each other well. I thank you that you have made us one body. You've made us one family. I thank you that we get to bring together a whole host of different gifts and talents and emphasis. And I thank you we get to come together and be stronger uh, because of that. So we're just, God, we're, we're so overcome and overwhelmed with the goodness of all that you've done and that you're doing. And we just want to say how much we trust you and we love you and we worship you and we thank you for your perfect plan. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.